Our reading today comes from Genesis 2, verses 14 through 17. Please give attention to the reading of God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know the end of this story, and we know that we do indeed die. And Yet we praise you for your word and for your son. Father, we ask that we might see your son through your word this morning. Would you open our hearts and the eyes of our mind that we might be given this spirit, Lord, this breath of life to go out and to attend and keep this kingdom that you are ushering in, Father. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Christian. Uh, some of you have uh, have watched a lot of more films and movies than I ever will. But from <clears throat> where I sit and what I've seen, there are basically there's a finite number of movie plots. I don't know what that number is, but there's a finite number. It might be seven. It might be twelve. You might have a better answer. But um, but there's seven. Unless it's a Hallmark movie, and then there's only one. But, uh, but there is a recurring movie plot, one that comes up. It, it goes as far back as a 1932 Greta Garbo film, I'm, I've learned, which is about the time film started, <laughs> by the way. So uh, one of those recurring things is the one where someone, for reasons that become clear as the movie unfolds, has developed amnesia. You've seen it uh, Robert Ludlum made it famous for some of us in the Born Identity films where there's one protagonist who's lost his way and his identity and tries to piece it together and figure it out. But here's the way it normally goes, where the protagonist wakes up or comes alert in a new place or it's new to him. It's a strange place because everything's strange. He's forgotten his past. He's forgotten his family, his friends, his work. And, uh, and then he takes up 
a residence in a new place and develops a new life with new friends, a new job. And until one day, um, the clues that have come his way that could or should have given him some handle, clues that he had missed, are pointed out to him. And maybe it's the stranger who stops him in the street and calls him by a strange name, his own, <laughs> not knowing that it's his own or her own. And, and then the story begins to kind of come together when a reliable guide beside them helped them connect the dots. Um, that reliable guide is vital, you see, to uh, that person reestablishing who they are where they came from, and what's true and what's not, a reliable guide. By every indication, we live in a world where the question about a reliable guide being available is up for grabs. I mean, you know that. In fact, it's part of your story. It may be part of your story today, as far as I know, where you're wondering, is there something reliable that you can count on to figure this thing out called life? The life, the life that you're living or attempting to live. And that's true for all of us. So where do we go for that kind of help? It, without a reliable guy, you see, with all we, if all we have is missing clues, it's confusion or cynicism at best or peril or destruction at worst. According to uh, one survey... 91% of U.S. adults either completely or somewhat agree with this statement. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% of Americans. 76% of practicing Christians agreed with that in some degree. The best way to find yourself is by looking within. That same survey, Barna's, uh, reveals that when it comes to is there a reliable guide, is there anything that is authoritative, is that's trustworthy, that is absolute, 44% said truth is relative, and 21% had never thought about it. That's the world that we live in. That's, those are the films that we watch. Those are the songs that we hear. Never thought about it. And attempts to make life work in this world, to, uh, to create meaning when there is presumably none, is the best that, that we can do without a reliable guide. It's hard to find, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more fundamental text than the one before us that's dropped down in the midst of a world asking questions. And there are a lot of questions granted about this text. Uh, we talked about that, Nate has, in previous weeks. We talked a little bit last week during that Sunday school hour about different ways of understanding this creation um, narrative and how does it fit together. And all of those questions don't get answered anywhere soon. There are questions around it. However, what it comes to us is it comes to us from the one who made this world. We 
we can bank on that. Because you see, this book is more than just the the result of people wondering about God over a period of time and collecting those thoughts in one place. Now, we understand it as God's revelation, that God has stepped into the world that he made, and he has spoken, and he has spoken so reliably. And what the Bible then becomes is our soul's owner's manual. Or... Another way to think about it in the text that before us today is we get a little bit of a blend of a birth certificate and a job description. And if you're lost and trying to figure out who you are and what you're about and what's, what you're to do in this world, those are the things you need. The birth certificate that explains who you are, where you came from, where you live, and then your purpose in the world. And we see that in this passage there's a lot here, and we won't finish this text. There's too many verses for one sermon, I will admit. But <clears throat> what we do see when we open our eyes and look at Genesis 2, we see three things. We see a garden. That's on the surface. We see a gardener, although he's not called that, but you can see it as the story goes. A garden, a gardener, and a garden plant. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Genesis 2, beginning with verse 4, which, by the way, is uh, just as an aside, verse 4 of chapter 2 is probably where chapter 2 should have started. Uh, As you read through the rest of Genesis, you're going to see this language. These are the generations of 10 times. This is the first time. And And every other time, it introduces... What follows, which means when we get to verse 4, that's introducing what we're about to look at today. It's not summarizing what we've read, although it kind of works both ways. But the best way to understand it is it's an introduction to beginning with verse 5, which is where we will start today. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So what we see is the garden. That's what's here. We're going we're gonna to skip over the gardener for a moment and just focus on what does this text tell us about the world in which we live. When the bush, verse 5, when, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to work the garden. Wait a minute, we just did that in chapter 1, didn't we? That raises questions about how does this chapter relate to chapter 1. And I'm coming to that, but we're starting with the garden, okay? Hang on to the question. We're starting with the garden. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God, verse 8, planted a garden in Eden. That's language to help us understand what God is up to when he formed this world. They didn't, that it was formless and void. We've covered that in chapter 1. And now it is formed and, and it is being filled. And in the midst of it, we see God, the language is planting a garden. Now you plant a garden for a purpose. And that purpose becomes clear. But that's the, that's the image and the picture that, that God gives us here, that the Lord planted a garden in a place called Eden. 
Eden, by the way, is, a, is, the, is the region. We don't know where it is. We know from where these rivers, or at least two of these rivers, we can point to on a map. Tigris and Euphrates. You learned about those in something grade, whatever grade that was. You learned about Tigris and Euphrates. Kids, right? Didn't you get that? Uh, yeah. Yes. You did Tigris, Euphrates. Uh, beginning of civilization, somewhere around there. Two other rivers, we're not sure where they were. You can't find them on a map. But based on that, the idea, all scholars agree, that the Garden of Eden, or Eden itself, was somewhere near the northern end of the Arabian Peninsula. That gulf there, that's kind of where we're talking about. That part of the world is where this story begins. And within Eden is the Garden. Uh, We don't know the size of the Garden. There's a lot about the Garden we don't know. Uh, we know that it was something fabulous and fascinating. Uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew, as you know, the Greek translation of the Old Testament for garden uses the word paradisos. Paradise. That's where we get that word. That's why paradise is associated with this garden of Eden. There's no other category, biblically speaking, of paradise other than this picture to us. At the beginning of the story, there's this picture to us of a place that is lavish and lush, and it was good. So, what we do know, a lot of things we don't know, but what we do know is that Adam was in paradise. We also know something else. The presence of a river here is significant. It's, it's always in Scripture, often in Scripture, associated with the presence of God. And we can see from this and could, could rightly conclude that what made Eden and this garden such paradise was the life-giving presence of God. It wasn't just the best state park you've ever seen, and Tennessee has some great ones. It wasn't just the best national park, and we've got all kinds of those that, are, that I can't wait to see the next one. But the life-giving presence of God is what gave Eden in this garden its flavor and its essence. It's a world, you see, that was formed in God's heart. The world in which we live, this garden in which we carry out our lives, planet Earth, formed in the heart of God. And if nothing else, what that means is where you are matters. Formed in the heart of God. There's two features about this world that, that, that give us another set of handles on it. In verse 9, we read that it was pleasant to the sight. It was beautiful. Think Rocky Mountain National Park. Think Trout Lake, a mile above Telluride, Colorado, where I, my sister lives, of all places. Think of the most glorious vistas that you've seen and keep going. Uh, the, the world in which we live is beautiful. Created as it is. Um, last week, sometime, Mary Lynn and I watched a, an episode of Blue Planet, BBC America's 
latest version of planet Earth. Because it's not just Rocky Mountain lakes and ice-capped mountains. There's staggering beauty on the bottom of the ocean floor that no one ever sees. Until BBC shows up (laughs) with their cameras. But it's staggering. The world in which we live is remarkable. It's beautiful, but it's not only beautiful. It is useful. It is good for food is what we read. There's utility. There's usefulness. Now, many have taken that and gone off the rails and exploited the world in which we live for the almighty dollar. That's not what it's talking about when it says useful here. It's talking about that there is a potential in the creation that belongs to us because we've been given it by God, not only to look at, but also to feed us. It's beautiful in its usefulness. But that usefulness, much of that usefulness, is potential. It's not that we can walk around and pick all of our food off of the tree that we walk past between here and our car. In fact, you probably shouldn't try picking things off of trees between here and your car, this time of year especially. But... But there's, a, there's potential in the world that God made. And that's why the garden is not a garden without a gardener. And that's where you come into play. God created the world. He formed it of his own heart. The world is formed in God's heart, but the world is ordered by our hands. That's what we see as we keep going. We see a gardener where we see that there was no man to work the garden. And then verse 7, God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, a real gardener. There's two actions that are divine. He formed them. That's the the word that that the writer uses is a word that refers to a potter. That's the image. We see it again in Scripture, the potter and the clay. And the picture here is how God did what what was described in chapter 1. So verse 27 of chapter 1, where we first ran across this, made in God's image, remember, a couple of weeks ago? What, What the writer is doing now is he's going back to that verse and expanding our vista so that we begin to see what actually did occur in verse 27. Of chapter 1. So we're going now and looking at this and we're seeing that what God did was he took something from the ground, the dust of the ground, and fashioned it into a person. Okay, now we've got questions, right? <laughs> we have questions that this text doesn't answer about all of that. But what we have to go on is that God formed us out of substance that was around, that he created, and he shaped a person, and then he did something more intimate than you really grasp until you think about this. He breathed into his nostrils. He breathed life into his nostrils. He didn't just form and make something, but he gave something. He, he, it was a self-giving. And what that means is 
If you're walking around with hands and feet and arms and breathing, it's because God has given you something of himself. That breath that you just took, that was a gift from him. That breath you're about to take, he's ready to give you another one. That's, that's the interpersonal reality that we're talking about here, that God not only formed you, created you in his image, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but he formed you and gave you life from himself. The life that you live had its origins in him. There's a self-giving there. Two activities that are divine. Such intimacy, Derek Kidner, uh, Nate quoted, and I am too here, said this, breathed is warmly personal. With the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. You were formed and breathed into. Two actions that are divine, and then you were given two activities assigned. The first one, verse, they're both in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and keep it. Work. Um, a lot of things kind of flash through your mind when you hear that word. Uh, many of you will jump in a car or make your way to some place of employment tomorrow. We're talking about that right now. Some of you will head to school. You'll pick up books and you'll read and you'll learn, and, and that's your work. If you're in school, that is your work right now. You have work to do. Um, this word work, it's translated different ways in different places. The word is avodah, and sometimes it means work as we typically use the word. Sometimes it means service. Sometimes it means craftsmanship. And other times it is translated worship. You see, there is a seamless understanding of work and worship in the biblical narrative, in the biblical story in which you find yourself. It includes the back-breaking work of making bricks in Egypt. That's the word used to describe what Israel did in Egypt. The back-breaking work. Sometimes work is hard. <laughs> if, you, if you're lifting things for a living, you can expect back pain or calluses or sore knees. Work is hard at times. It includes, it's artisans building the tabernacle, crafting fine linens. That's the work in view. It's, it's the word Solomon used to describe the Levites and the priests regarding their service leading corporate worship and praise of the one true God. That's work. But our vocational calling is an act of God-honoring worship. You know, when I first used that word work, what did flash through your mind? Keep in mind as you continue to turn that over in your head that work was not a result of the fall. We treat it as, we think of it as a necessary evil or, yeah, i got to go to work. I mean, i got to pay bills to pay. I've got a mortgage. I've got to work. We think of it as a necessary evil, but it was, it was actually an essential good. It's what God had in mind when he put 
Adam in the garden before the fall to do what? To work it and to keep it. That keeping is a nurturing of sorts. That's the picture. It's, you see, the work that we do, whether we're learning out of a book in the third grade or we're near the end of a lifelong career and wondering what we will do next, the work that you're called to is ordering the world in God's name. It's bringing order where there was not. It's understanding. It's bringing out the potential. It's, for engineers, it's building a bridge that works. That's the bridge I want. That's, that's seeing, beginning to see the edges and the, and, the, and the fullness of what vocation is, biblically speaking. And human, we're always, it's bringing the goodness out of the world. It's building things. And, we, and we're constantly doing that. Humans are constantly doing it. If you don't believe it, just go to the nursery and throw a, a, some, some blocks down in front of a group of kids. And so, now, they might start throwing them, but, but most of the time, they're, they're, they're assembling something. They're putting something together. It's a, it's a feature of being human and designing God's image of, of bringing order and making things and, and establishing a place, something that is better than we found it or more useful. It's, it's the farmer looking at the soil and knowing what to do with it by trial and error and, and treating that soil in such a way that good things happen. But it's also the very way God intends for the fulfillment of this enterprise. You see, it's now in your hands. Does God still do it? Of course he does. But he's using you. You pick up the the job that God has put in place and flesh it out and bring it out. This is how... um, Martin Luther understood it. I'm reading from Gene Veef, who writes in a book entitled, God at Work, Your Christian Vocation in All of Life. When he says, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, observe Luther, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And he does give us our daily bread. He does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, the person who prepared our meal. We might today add the truck drivers who hauled the produce, the factory workers in the food processing plant, the warehouse men, the wholesale distributors, the stock boys, the lady at the checkout counter. Also playing their part are the bankers, futures investors, advertisers, lawyers, agricultural scientists, mechanical engineers, and every other player in the nation's economic system. All of these were instrumental in enabling you to eat your morning bagel. You see, the work that we've been given is a part of God's way of working in this world. And when you drive to work tomorrow, or when you sit down at a desk in your home, or you're working from a coffee shop, you're tilling the garden. You're cultivating. You're bringing life out of what, you're bringing purpose and function out of things that have potential. That's what we do as we order our lives accordingly to this thing. This, there's a garden, a world formed in the heart of God, and there are gardeners. The world is ordered by our hands, and what you do matters. But there's also a plan, and we see that here. 
that the world is sustained by God's love. You know, there's two trees uh, here in this story. There's many trees, actually, and the spotlight is on two. Our attention is called to a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And here we begin to see how God sustains the world by his love, by, by ordering our lives according to these trees. There's not enough said about these two trees to really answer all of our questions. We have to look a little further ahead and see how these trees play out in the rest of the story. The tree of life um, apparently is, is only mentioned one more time in Genesis, and it's in chapter 3, right before Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. We'll get to that story in a week or two. But this tree of life symbolizes something and stands for something and has an effect. And what we learn is Adam and Eve, before they're banished, they're banished because if they were to partake of the tree of life in their fallen nature, they would be confirmed in that sinfulness forever. So there's something, not magical, but there's something sacramental. There's something consolidating. There's something powerful and effective about this tree of life, which is a very small part of this story, but it becomes a bigger part as the story goes on. But the one that this text revolves around is the other, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's a specific kind of knowledge, moral and ethical categories, and we don't know what that one's all about fully. But what we do know is that when Adam finally did go for that one, and Eve, as we will hear, we see that Adam judged God and Eve in the same sentence. It didn't take him long to kind of take this in, and, in front of it. and he went that far, judging God and Eve in the, in the very same sentence. And as somebody said, that's pretty good for your first day as a sinner. You know, he's really rocked the boat. And, and that's why. When God points to the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he does so with prohibitions. You know, we don't like prohibitions. I mean, I don't. Um, but you know what I've learned, and I think you have too, that there are landmines. <laughs> there are ditches. Life doesn't work left to itself. And left to me at the steering wheel, watch out. You know, life doesn't really work when, when we have to figure it out and stumble our way in the dark. It's like living in the dark. And that's a biblical metaphor. And it's true because you've been there, or maybe you are there. It feels like the lights have gone out. Where's the light switch? There are prohibitions. There, there are guardrails, there are sidelines, there, there is an avenue where life is good and pleasant and it works. Not flawlessly, not in this world, but there is a place where we're to live our life. And that's why it, here we, what we read is prohibition. You see, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, God has established boundaries. He said, this is how it works. This is how it doesn't work. Would you look to me, he says. 
And because of that plan, because of the fullness and the effectiveness of God's creative work of art and design, and he's placed you and me in the garden of this world to live and to work, the question then becomes, so what do I do when, when it doesn't? What do I do when it doesn't work? And that's where it de- we learn is it depends on where you turn. Adam was going to learn that pretty soon. And you and I can learn it today. It depends on where you turn. God has made provision. It's not on the surface of this passage unless you're Hebrew. Or unless you're a very careful reader. In chapter 1, Moses uses the word Elohim for God. It's a majestic name describing God in all of his fullness, his, his majesty. It's the right word to talk about God as creator of the universe, signifying and pointing to his all-powerful deity, that he's powerful, that he's strong, that he's capable. That's the word Moses uses in chapter 1. And when we get to chapter 2, it's a different word. Now, some people have said that's obviously because the editor of this book used two different sources, one using this name and other using that name. But that's not a necessary conclusion. If you understand the history of redemption, what Moses is up to. Do you remember who he's assembled this material for? Nate mentioned it, I believe, last week or the week before. Maybe both. This is Moses presenting to the people of Israel who you are, where you came from. This God who has delivered you, who is he? What is your story? Where is your birth certificate and your job description? (laughs) And when he does... Moses in chapter 2 says, you remember that God who created you? That's the God who redeemed you. It's Yahweh Elohim. That's what we read in chapter 2 and the rest of this section. The God who made you is the God who redeemed you. And that's vital and crucial for you and me to remember and understand as we begin to understand things about the garden and work in this world and our purpose, because we lose our way and we go our own way and we turn our back on the one who made us and called us to himself, who gave us an identity and a purpose and a a role and a place. He, He redeems the way you even think about your job, according to this. That it's not just paying the bills. It's not a necessary evil. No, that's, it's redemptive to understand that God made you and he wired you and he crafted you in a specific way. You are unique. And you have a unique set of gifts and, and abilities that are to be used for his glory. And oh, by the way, it will pay the bills. But it's, it's stepping into what God has made you to be and do. And that's redemptive. Remember the God who made you is the one who redeemed you, who redeems the way you think about work, the one who think about the world in which you live. So we, we turn to the full name. That's what we do when things go wrong. We turn to the name, the one who, who redeemed us. But we also turn to the tree. 
Remember that tree of life that appeared one more time in Genesis? It actually appears at the very end of this big book. The very end. Revelation chapter 22. There's a tree of life there. You see, this tree of life is a tree that heals all who come to it. And that's where you and I need to come. To the one, the true tree of life. You see, Jesus Christ is now to us the tree of life. Who wrapped in the righteous robes of Christ, who still stumble along and, f- and fail as even forgiven righteous sinners in this world. When we come to the tree of life, we are confirmed. We are, we are sealed. But not as sinners. Not as people who stumble in the darkness trying to find our way in this world. But people who, though we may stumble, belong to the one who is true. The one who gave his life as God the Father gave his breath, God the Son gave his life. Of the life-giving tree of life laid his life down. So in chapter 22, we read about the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit, its fruit each month. When we lose our way, we turn to the full name. The God who made you is the one who redeemed you. But we turn to the tree, the tree of life. And it's only the wisdom, the only kind of wisdom that works in daily life is the same wisdom that created and will redeem the world. Let's pray. Father, that story is bigger than where we tend to go. Would you help us to step into the fullness of this story and understand in fresh and new ways that you've made us for yourself, you've given us a purpose in this world to bring the potential out of it, to be employed in it, to give ourselves for the good of others, and to use the work of our hands as a display of your glory in this world, the one who owns us, the one who has redeemed us. Christ our Lord, in his name, whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.